This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Uh, this is our first episode on Passing by Nella Larson from 1929. And for this book, we have guests on each of our two episodes um, about it, incredible guests. And I'm going to tell you about them, but while I'm talking, uh, just imagine how happy Sandy and I were when each of them agreed to come on our brand new little podcast. This week, we have conversation a conversation with uh, Megan Abbott, and next week's episode, we'll be talking with Caitlin Greenidge. Um, and it's a testament to the richness of this book that um, even though it feels pretty accessible and easy to enjoy, uh, there's so much for each of our guests to say about it that there's very little overlap in these conversations. Um, and I think we really only just scratched the surface of it. Um, I'll tell you a little about Megan Abbott and then a quick summary of the book, um, and then we'll get to the interview. Megan Abbott is an award-winning author of nine crime novels, including the best-selling You Will Know Me and Give Me Your Hand. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Paris Review, and The Wall Street Journal. Formerly a writer on HBO's The Deuce, she's co-showrunner and co-creator of Dare Me, which recently completed its first season on the USA Network and Netflix. Her latest novel, The Turnout, will be out in summer 2021. So, Passing, it's about two light-skinned black women in the 1920s in New York. They knew each other as children, they fell out of touch, um, and then Claire marries a white man and she lives passing as white, while Irene marries a black man and lives as an upper-middle-class black woman. Um, and when the book starts, they have met again by chance, and then uh, they have a series of increasingly tense encounters that we only see from Irene's point of view. Um, she sort of discovers more about Claire's life and uh, she starts to think that her own husband is in love with Claire. It seems like Irene herself is in love with Claire. Um, and it ends with Claire falling out a window and dying, possibly because Irene pushed her. Really, it's definitely because Irene pushed her, but um, she's an unreliable narrator. Um, there's a lot of layers to uh, to her motivations. Um that we will be discussing. So here's our conversation with Megan Abbott. Okay, so I'm going to start with one of these complicated questions, which gives context to the person who doesn't know what we're talking about. So so before this, we started recording, we were talking about how this is such a great use of unreliable narrator. So we only ever see Claire through the eyes of Irene. Um, and we feel like her desire for Claire, but Irene isn't conscious of of what she feels about Claire or why she hates Claire and all of this. And the novel makes you change sides over and over. Um, so what I wanted to know, like to talk to Megan as a person who has taught this book to undergraduates, when you teach it, are the students team Claire or are they team Irene? Well, oh, what a great question. It's so interesting. I <laughs> It, it does tend to vary. I mean, it's often was a source of great and intense discussion in class because 
in some ways, I think, you know, in some, it's sometimes for students' first experience with a really unreliable narrator or even the notion that a narrator could be unreliable. So I think a lot of first reads are really, uh, you know, sort of side by side, side steps with um, Irene, you know, because she's telling, giving us all the information, her wariness about Claire and her sense of Claire as a threat is, is, is theirs. Uh, so it's almost like it takes a little more to, to sort of see the other side. On the other hand, Claire's gl- glamour, <clears throat> and I think her, um, her modernity mm. is, speaks a lot more to, to students and Claire, uh, Irene's sort of very bourgeois, uh, very very in some ways very old fashioned um, to to student to students' um, eyes and ears is is a drag. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think uh, and the, you know, but then I mean, whenever I've taught it, you know, it. I mean, this book when I was in grad school. It was the early '90s. This had just come back into discussion. You know, it. No one had talked about it at all, and, and it sort of, uh, you know, was reprinted. And there was this very important article by Deborah McDowell that sort of pulled the the notion of, uh, pa- you know, all these other kinds of passing going on in the novel, particularly in terms of uh, queer desire. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So the you know this was to that to students you know their first experience of like not only an unreliable narrator but that there's this whole thing going on through the whole book <laughs> and if you go back and start it again and you read it through the context of Irene having this suppressed desire that she must stifle out uh, for Claire it the book changes on you which is yeah. what the best unreliable narrator books do it's just like Lolita in that way the second time you read it. You, you know, uh, you—it's a horror story. The first time, it's—it's it's quite different usually. I think the yeah. first place that the unreliable narrator jumped out for me was um, there's this very memorable scene where it's um, Irene and Claire and another friend, and Claire's white husband comes in and gives her this really offensive racialized nickname, not knowing that she's actually black. And um, Claire kind of laughs along with it. And Irene is just like, oh, my gosh, you have no dignity. This is so just it's like this awful (laughs) thing within your marriage. And then like a couple scenes later, she's talking to her own husband and they're having this conversation about um, like feminine intelligence. And uh, I mean, meaning the opposite of intelligence, you know, the, the word feminine being the insult in this case. Um, and he's kind of teasing mm-hmm. her about like her reasons being too feminine for a man to understand. And she kind of pushes it off herself. She doesn't push off the idea um, that um, she just doesn't want the, the word feminine to be applied to herself. It's not that she, she's like, Oh, stop using feminine as an insult. Or, you know, it, it's like, she's just like, no, Claire is like that. I'm not like that. Um, and she kind of pushes it a step further and saying it's like, it's not even feminine. It's like feline. And it's, you know, a form of manipulation and stupidity <laughs> that can sort of propel you through the world. Um, and that was that was kind of the first point where I was like, wait a minute. What she believes about her own marriage and Claire's marriage is not the truth. 
Yes, yes. And there's, I mean, I suppose it's even from the start, this sort of giving, like imputing all this um, um, sort of seductive intent in Claire where there's really essentially no evidence for it. Like even her, (laughs) you know, her handwriting and even the like choice of paper she uses (laughs) to send her note. And it's like the anxiety in it is, is like such a, you know, like such a flag for a, a book that's not like really a suspense novel, even though it is. Um, you know, wh- why is she so nervous? Why is she ups- upset? Why is she so threatened by this? And I think there's so many stages we go through. But the the sort of the layers of that Irene's marriage to Brian is one of the, I think, most upsetting reveals because she does start to really show her hand at the very end uh, um, where she wonders if she's ever really been in love and his contempt for her, which sort of bubbles mm. through the whole book, feels, you know, he's so dismissive of her and, uh, you know, it's sort of... Uh, you know, then that strange way that she triangulates her feelings for Claire through him. And, it, uh, you know, there's just uh, it all sort of she can't hold it together at the end. So all the sort of all the sort of, you know, all her tells are have been exposed to us, I think. And that's why Claire has Absolutely. to go. Yeah. Sandra, what did you think about the, the unreliable narrator? Well, I think that. Just, just about the, on this one subject, I think like this is, this is a thing where we we still don't know if Brian and Claire might have been having a relationship, nonetheless. Like this book, the, it kept reminding me of the, the Catherine Mansfield short story Bliss. I'm not sure if either of you have ever read that, but in in Bliss, it's basically a woman who is unaware that she has fallen in love with a woman who she, who her husband insists he finds annoying and it's so obviously the whole short story like she's completely excited about a dinner party she's having solely because of this woman and she sees this woman and she's going to speak to this woman and they speak to each other and she's so in love and then at the very end of the story she sees the woman being clandestinely kissed by her husband and they're making arrangements to meet the next day so so there there is that sense like that she is not She's jealous. She just doesn't know who of. And she might have a reason to be jealous. Brian could be thinking of leaving her for Claire. And that is a completely unacceptable thing from every point of view and what it will make her face about herself as at the end of Bliss, the woman has to face what her feelings are when she sees her husband kissing the woman she's secretly in love with. Um, But there's this this way of, yeah, it's this way of creating that nature of the triangular relationships that women have with women because they live in a world which is defined by men. It's, I mean, it's a story that's really good for that. Yeah, it's funny because I only can read Brian as gay. So it's really hard, which is, I mean, there is, and then there also, I mean, there's a, uh, this. I've only ever read it that way in part because there are these little coded sort of, you know, I, why I first read it annotated and these coded things to Brazil being more open to, to, um, um, homosexuality among men um, and his, his longing to go there is that was sort of a code for that. And there's that there's sort of those coded phrases like, 
queer unhappy restlessness of Brian and, and she how he says sex. she's just like oh no he doesn't like women doesn't, and it's like no. <laughs> it's like no he doesn't like women yes exactly um, but yeah. also um yeah I I wouldn't say it's out of the question that you know even so he might be having some kind of that, that Claire might seem like an open window to him. Gosh, no. that's a terrible thing to say, given that she actually falls out of an open window. I just, sorry. I just mean that, yeah. that, like, that, that she might answer some need that he has also, because he also hates black people. Like that's also like, he's a doctor, but he is so scornful of the brothers that he's trying to uplift. And he has this well, he, idea that, yeah. that what he's doing is um, like, even though he hates everything he's doing, um, and scorns the people that he's doing it for, um, that it's like virtuous. I, I think he, I think he hates poor black people because they're like, you know, this sort of, there's their sort of racial uplift movement they're, they're involved in. It, it was so bourgeois at the time. It was so connected to that. And I think it is one of those internalized racism things where, um, you know, he, he does doesn't want to see someone that's going to reflect badly on on his race, right? By being poor and messy, and uh, you know, he's such an unpleasant character, um, mm. and and that though makes you also wonder because this is, of course, Irene's point of view, which I think points to the emptiness in the marriage, and it is interesting that that she Irene decides they're having an affair at the exact moment when her attraction to Claire like seems most clear like she can't contain it anymore so it's like she immediately moves it over no it's not me it's not me it's Brian who's having the affair with her well so, and so it's just yeah she, she's such Claire a puzzle just her naked shoulder <laughs> like Claire comes in for the party and she, and Irene is still changing and yeah. then greeting like Irene or Claire kisses Irene's naked shoulder. I was like, oh, the te- the subtext just became text here. Yeah. No, I think that happens a couple times. And there is even the, you know, there's that moment when she's sort of realizing her feelings because she's so mad at Brian. And he sort of jerks his head around like he's like in cold surprise, it says. And, and then she says her her voice she realized had gone queer and that you know the queer at that time did have those did have all that all that meaning inherent in it so it's like i do think that there's larson's really teasing with all this stuff with the kiss with with the the language even that claire uses that feels very passionate you know towards irene um you know i'm long to be with you again and uh yeah i think it's it's to me it's like so the eroticism is so heightened by the end claire is this kind of flame that it it's impossible that it's not going to incinerate <laughs> it's really it's sort of interesting in how claire combines the the roles of the antagonist and the love interest because she really is an antagonist to Irene, if only in Irene's own mind. So you can read it without seeing any of that or without counting any of that as real. And and this is this is actually like it, it has to do with female friendship as well, which is always a sort of a love that can suddenly be flipped into an antagonistic rivalry, and especially in the way that we imagine these relationships. So I was sort of thinking of this 
book through oh. the lens of the Bechdel test, mm. basically. So even the, even though Claire and Irene don't actually talk about Brian through the book, like in, in Irene's mind, everything is mediated through male relationships and she can't get rid of that. She can't subtract that from any interaction with Claire or else she might be able to see what was going on. But she she's actually, and partly financially she can't, she doesn't have any way of supporting herself and her children without being heterosexual. That was something that I, that I was thinking too. Like Irene is being paid to lie to herself. She's being paid to not know the truth about what's actually happening. Um, that that's like all of her respectability, all of her ability to um, order a second glass of iced tea at a um, a rooftop cafe is um, is tied up in yeah. not knowing what is in that unreliability of the narrator. Yeah, well, and along the same lines, she's so frightened of. Um losing her stability and safety she's you know the she's so frightened of any disruption that's partially what this why this brazil idea is so terrifying to her she doesn't want to leave she doesn't want anything to change she, uh she's uh and you know of course claire then represents only change like changing all the time like like shape-shifting and it's sort of like a lot of female friendship narratives there's they're, they tend to be like opposites, right? And the one is mm-hmm. does what the other one. That, they both would like to be the other one, but this is such an Irene book, you know. S- sort of Claire does what Irene would like to do, but is afraid to do. Um, and even like there's that great moment when um, Claire says, "I think being a mother, motherhood is the cruelest thing in the world," and Irene is feels that agrees with it so intensely she almost starts crying and so i think that that happens a few times where claire voices the thing that that irene can't voice so she represents this this freedom that you know is is both has to do with both race class gender sexuality like all of it at once because she sort of rejects all the binaries and and uh you know, does what she wants in that way. I mean, whenever I've taught it, and I was curious what you guys thought about this. I've often taught her, taught it is a, her as a femme fatale, but how a femme fatale feels really different when it's through a woman's eyes. <laughs> um, and it, it could just as, as you were saying, Sandra, you know, it's because she's her, both her, her, fr- her friend and her enemy. And that's, uh, you know, maybe that's what the femme fatale looks like in a story about two women. But what's interesting about it as well is that even though Claire is set up as the femme fatale, Irene is the femme who is actually fatale for Claire. So Claire is actually the one who's threatened by this relationship the whole time. And I I actually thought, like, to speak of, I mean, uh, (laughs) Catherine's had her bad puns, so I'll add mine. Uh, (laughs) Claire is cat-like throughout the book. And you really feel like if her marriage blows up, she will land on her feet. But at the end, that's exactly what she can't do. when yes. this relationship goes <laughs> yes. <up. laughs> yes and she's also the other association with her of course is fire there's all kinds of references to her fire and she even sort of that there's that cigarette that you know that knocks the ashes off and goes all the way down to <laughs> you know down to where where claire soon will be uh so i think both of those are images so associated with the feminine um and i think 
that's also what's so fascinating. Um, it's mm. it is, you know, like the femme fatale too. You know, Irene really could stop seeing her. She keeps saying, "I didn't want to see her anymore," <laughs> but she keeps seeing. Like she can't stop herself. So that's so interesting too. It's almost as if she made Claire up inside her head, or that that Claire is some sliding doors version of of herself, uh, which is also so. so yeah, at the beginning, Irene about, says with so much confidence that. that of course, once you start passing, you just won't be welcome back. But that's not true at all. Like, she has this sense that they've each made their choice, and yeah. Irene has this, and Claire <laughs> yeah. has that, and they can each sort of look at what the other one has and feel envy. And you can see that, that there's like, you know, that, then that would be like Ferrante or something. It's like, oh, each each one made their choice, and then their lives go in, like, different directions. Um, but that's not really the story that actually is in this book it's they each made their choice that turns out to be very permeable and um none of the walls that separate those choices are really what they appear to be like claire fully comes back and claire is is fully yeah, so, in yeah, the so same much. society that irene is in yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i think irene has a lot invested in that in that notion that you can't come back Right. It's uh, um, and the you know, we were talking about, you know, the, the tragic mulatto narrative like that, like that's, you know, the, there's a those boundaries feel really important to her. And the fact that that Claire can move back and forth so freely is is so disruptive to her, just like all of these all of these um, societal structures Irene sort of like she yeah. has to believe in them or she'll explode you know <laughs> um, this is like a Betty Betty Draper uh, kind of thing like I can't take anything that uh, my you know in some ways my life is so unhappy you Absolutely. can't tell me it didn't and have to be I think the way. amount she's tormented by the, the feeling yeah. that she should be she should have a sense of solidarity with other black people but then when it's other women she's like okay finally I can just say that they totally deserve whatever's coming to them. You know, that it's like any oppression that another woman faces is like totally yeah. the result of her own choices. Um, but she feels guilty about it when she acts like that about black people. And, it went beautiful. Like the, the first scene with her and Clara is so beautiful in this respect because she, all of her hypocrisy is is unveiled in this moment when she is like completely flagrantly <laughs> passing herself without even thinking about it. So that when Claire is first <laughs> staring at her, it takes her a minute to even think that it's possible that Claire might know that she's black. And then with, you know, within a minute of Claire talking to her, she's judging Claire for possibly having gone out with white boys when she was a teenager. Um, I, yeah. One last point, which we're, we're probably running into the right amount of time here, but, um, uh, I think that this idea that they can meet in a cafe in public seems, uh, the book came out in 1929, and that seems so new that women who had families and who had the social context could also step out of that social context. Like they aren't meeting at a ball where their parents are also in attendance. They're not meeting um, kind of in sort of an extended private sphere, they're meeting fully in a public sphere um, where they can be both anonymous and respectable. Um, and I think in the 1920s, that was very new for that kind of um, urban setting to be 
available to women without sort of compromising any of their reputation. Right, right. You mean in terms of, you know, women being in public space unaccompanied? Yeah, yeah, just a woman, like, going to a cafe and having a conversation with somebody that she wasn't introduced to, that that's... That, that idea that you can only meet people through introductions to sort of maintain everyone's uh, respectability. Um, yeah, public yeah. Anon- anonymity in public is what you're talking about, being able to yeah. go out in public and not be the person, not be immediately recognized as Claire Yes, Kendrick, for both Irene to and Claire to have that, that ability to be nobody without fully sacrificing their reputations you know, without actually falling out of society. Yeah, no, that's interesting because it is sort of one of the arguments about the sort of rise of the department store, which was fairly within 50 years of this, you know, that that allowed women to legitimately be in public space without without men. And, uh, and you know, by the late 20s, of course, there were lots of freedoms, but... Um, not necessarily for the the bourgeois you know world in which Irene lives. So it is like she's already dancing a lie. She's dancing so many lines at once. But you, it is like the third or fourth read before you you start to see um, how she's doing it. Like she's finding her way. It's you know one of the things that. I think is interesting to think about is because this was a sort of forgotten novel for so long, but now it's really seen as also one of the great um, once neglected modernist novels because it feels so contemporary in the way that modernist novels do that, you know, the, the psychology, the fragmented identity, the unreliable narrator, that's all, yeah, you know, yeah. really 1920s, uh, you know, post, mm. post-World War One. So it's, it, it's uh, you know, it feels, you know, so fresh and it, ha- you know, dealing with a fractured sense of self, um, is identity real, uh, you know, or is, or is it just performance? That's all. It's, it's both modernist and even a little post-modernist in, in that way. So it's... It's, I think it's so wonderful that it's um, become um, canon now because I do feel like it was one of the one of the many things now that we we're covering that had Absolutely, been lost because yeah. they weren't taken seriously. Um, well, I would just say I do think it is so interesting how many kind the the title how many kinds of passing are going on in the book because <laughs> I think I think if the, I, I, we can't even start that conversation because we would never stop. But it is it is so fascinating to think about in our current moment, you know, where all the sort of binaries are falling apart um, and becoming much more complicated. It, I think it's a it's it's fascinating as a as a, a sort of marker in that road to, to where we are now in terms of particularly in terms of gender and sexuality. Yeah, it's really it's a great book for for being reminded that all all of that always was already in existence and and living within it. And it's also just such a great read. I always tell yeah. people, you know, it's so much fun and it's very glamorous. And, you know, she's so wonderful with the sensual details and the, you know, intoxicating voice. So it's, uh, I know there's going to be a movie made of it. I'm very curious about that. And 
that's our first episode on passing. Thank you so much to Megan Abbott for joining us, of course. Thank you also to Adam Bear for our theme music and all the people at LitHub for hosting us. Next week, we'll be talking about passing some more, and our guest will be Caitlin Greenwich. And we'll be discussing more about uh, Larson's social and literary context when she was writing this book um, and what her life was like and what kinds of ideas the book was standing against. Um, if you'd like to write us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is litcenturypodcast at gmail.com and our Twitter is litcenturypod. Goodbye till next week. <laughs>